to High Noon, released in 1952 by United Artists, and it stars Gary Cooper, among many others that are all excellent actors, and I'm Matt Johnson, recording today in Bellevue, Washington. And I'm uh, Bob Johnson in Los Angeles, welcoming you back to Classic Movie Reviews. And you can find us on the internet at www.classicmoviereviews.net or in iTunes just search for Classic Movie Reviews or you can search in Facebook uh, for Classic Movie Reviews and you can find us there as well. The uh, Some background information on the movie uh, it was released by United Artists. It was actually produced by Stanley Kramer Productions and distributed through United Artists. The director Fred Zinnemann had some great movies, From Here to Eternity in 1953, and a favorite of mine, which we'll have to do a podcast on, a review, The Day of the Jackal from 1973, which is like the uh, closest thing to a documentary on what was going on in France and Algeria in the uh, 1960s and 70s. Uh, Gary Cooper won a Best Actor Academy Award for this movie. It was his second Academy Award. He had also won in 1941 for Sergeant York. Uh, Lloyd Bridges is in the film. It was Grace Kelly's first feature film. And you remember Thomas Mitchell from Stagecoach. He was the mayor in High Noon. And uh, Katie Gerardo. Uh, so, and there were a host of character actors. I mean, I saw... 12 people, I think, in the movie that I thought, who, who is that? What is that person's name? There were a lot of them. Had a $730,000 budget, and the box office was $12 million. So I would say it did well. Huge hit. You said that you, wa- you, you, said you went and watched it in Lewistown at the theater there. You remember walking to it I can something? remember it like it was yesterday. I, it was on the Labor Day weekend of 1952, and I walked to the... It was called the Georgiana Theater, and uh, it was on, it was a Sunday or Saturday afternoon. Yeah, I loved the film. I, I enjoyed it a lot. I, I uh, made the mistake of doing some reading about it beforehand, and man, I went down a rabbit hole oh. on uh, all these analysis that have been done, and these papers, and you know, academic papers, and critical reviews. I read the original. Review of the movie from the New York Times from 1952. That was interesting. It, it It's just, I think you and I were talking beforehand that it's been over-analyzed by this point, I, I feel like. 
Oh, I think so too. It's almost to the point where you can't enjoy the movie because you're thinking about, well, what, what did they mean by that? What did they? What was the intent yeah. there? Well, I think uh, my take on it is I love the movie. It's fun to watch. And if Presidents Eisenhower, Reagan, and Clinton all think it's one of their favorite movies, that's quite a wide spectrum of political thought, and they all enjoy it. I love the opening. I, I was, I was going to take us back to kind of a quick capsule of the scenes. Yeah. I love the opening with the black and white and the uh, Lee Van Cleef uh, character framed in the trees. Mm-hmm. It almost looked like a still life. Yeah. And then the writer comes... The, the two riders come charging over the prairie grass. The cinematographer uh, overexposed the film a couple notches because he wanted everything to be really high contrasty and and uh, kind of bleak. And and if you notice, you never really see any clouds in the sky. The sky is always just blown out white. Yeah, and, and that was totally on purpose. It was part of the effect that they were trying to get. It won four Academy Awards, Best Actor. Best film editing, music score, and music song. Wasn't that opening great? Yeah, I liked it a lot. It was good. It, it, it's a pretty long opening of this guy riding through the hills. Yeah. And, and uh, was it Lee Van Cleef that was waiting? or Lee Van Cleef was waiting, and then there were two other people riding to him. They were yeah. going to meet. They were going to meet the other guy at the train. Lee Van Cleef was originally uh, slated to play the part of uh, Lloyd Bridges, but. They thought that his nose was too hooked and he looked too much like a bad guy, so he got this other role, which he never he never says anything in the film. He doesn't, and he, <laughs> and he got kind of typecast because he did a lot of similar roles over his career. Yeah. I love the black and white photography. I don't think it would be as dramatic if it had been in Technicolor or Deluxe Color or one of those. Do you want to just kind of highlight a few other things here? Uh, well, I thought it was interesting that uh, Gary... Cooper's character was getting married at the beginning, and that's kind of the next scene that, scene that they cut to. And his his bride is obviously so much younger than him. You know, it's like she was really, I think, twenty one years old at the time they filmed this, and he was in his fifties. He, he was fifty two. Yeah, and they actually had an affair during the filming of the movie. I know. I read about that. <laughs> well, you know, what are you going to do? You're on location, and yeah, got to do something while you're waiting. I think it's a straight-ahead story. It's got a lot of drama, such as the bad guys are coming, people in town are backing out, the bar crowd wants Frank Miller, the bad guy, the lead bad guy, to return. And you know, I, I I've read all this stuff about the background and what it means and all that, and you know, I I just take it in as a really well done psychological uh, western. And I thought Gary Cooper epitomized somebody who was reluctantly forced to do something that he really, he was frightened. They could tell he, the guy was frightened. He, he even went into the bar and tried to get some of those people to be on his side in the church. And, yeah, that uh, scene, was, the, those two scenes, the one he goes into the bar and then the one where uh, he goes into the church were were really well done because they were really being hard on him, I thought, and saying some pretty mean things, and he, he just kind of stood there and listened and, and took it, and then went on, went on his way. Went and on you, way. but you could tell he was like super disappointed and in them, and just and kind of distraught in the fact that 
you know, none of these people that he's basically, you know, cleaned up their town and, and kicked these bad guys out a few years ago now won't help him. And, and, and he did such a great job. Gary Cooper did such a great job of showing that with his facial expression yes. and, and the way that he would look at people. He didn't even really need to say very much. It was, he's just such a great actor. I can see why he won the Academy Award. I, I, the church scene, to me, the highlight of that is when the mayor, Jonas Henderson, the Thomas Mitchell character, gets up and you, first of all, when you hear him start, you think, okay, he's going to support this. All right. I'll say this. What this town owes Will Kane here, it can never pay with money. And don't ever forget it. He's the best marshal we ever had. Maybe the best marshal we'll ever have. So if Miller comes back here today, it's our problem, not his. It's our problem because this is our town. We made it with our own hands, out of nothing. And if we want to keep it decent, keep it growing, we've got a thing mighty clear here today. And we've got to have the courage to do what we think is right, no matter how hard it is. All right. There's going to be fighting when Kane and Miller meet. And somebody's going to get hurt, that's for sure. Now, people up north are thinking about this town. Thinking mighty hard, thinking about sending money down here to put up stores and to build factories. It'll mean a lot to this town, an awful lot. But if they're going to read about shooting and killing in the streets, what are they going to think then? I'll tell you. They're going to think this is just another wide open town. And everything we work for will be wiped out. In one day, this town will be set back five years. And I don't think we can let that happen. And then he turns it around and he really, he basically throws uh, Gary Cooper's character under the wagon. He does because, he, yeah, I thought the same thing. He's like, okay, good, he's going to stand up. And then he, but then he says at the end. You all know how I feel about this man. He's a mighty brave man, a good man. He didn't have to come back here today. And for his sake and the sake of this town, I wish he hadn't. Because if he's not here when Miller comes, my hunch is there won't be any trouble. Not one bit. Tomorrow we'll have a new marshal. And if we can all agree here to offer him our services, I think we can handle anything that comes along. Now, to me, that makes sense. To me, that's the only way out of this. Will, I think you better go while there's still time. It's better for you and it's better for us. You know, just 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 leave. You know, you're you believe you're that. the you're the you're the one that's going to be causing all the problems. If you're not here, they're not going to be problems. And and I think they were all deluding themselves. I mean, those guys were bad guys. They'd been put away for who knows how many different things they'd done. But that you you could tell that they were bad people. They were terrible. And I thought in the church there were a half a dozen or more people, men primarily, but there were also a couple of women that spoke up who would have supported him and gone with him. Well, and then in they fact, got one, of the, out of it. one of the most impassioned speeches was by a woman saying, don't you remember? Yes. I can't listen to any more of this. What's the matter with you people? Don't you remember when a decent woman couldn't walk down the street in broad daylight? Don't you remember when this wasn't a fit place to bring up a child? How can you sit here and talk and talk and talk like this? And I thought that was an interesting a dynamic because it's not like those women were going to go get guns and help him, you know, because of the way things were. But, uh, but then at the end of the movie, his, you know, it does kind of come around and he does 
get a little bit of help. Um, yes. And he and he definitely wouldn't have made it through without the help that he does get. I was going to say that a couple other things that come to mind. The hotel clerk or owner was really a snarky weasel. He was. He was. <laughs> just, it's like <laughs> I just wanted to go up and slap him when he said to uh, Gary Cooper going up the stairs. Is Helen Ramirez in? I guess so. Think you can find it all right? Well, yeah, <laughs> or when when uh, his Gary Cooper's bride, played by Grace Kelly, uh, Amy Fowler Kane, asked him... May I ask you something? Sure. Who is Miss Ramirez? Mrs. Ramirez? She used to be a friend of your husband's a while back. Before that, she was a friend of Frank Miller's. Thank you. You don't like my husband, do you? No. Why? Lots of reasons. One thing, this place was always busy when Frank Miller was around. I'm not the only one. There's plenty of people around here think he's got a comeuppance coming. You asked me, ma'am, so I'm telling you. And he lays it out for her, but he does it in a way that's really, like you said, mean and snarky. Oh, it's terrible. Another another part of the... I mean, there's so many good scenes in this. The uh, fight scene in Todd's livery stable between Gary Cooper and Lloyd Bridges is exceptionally well done for nineteen in the, for the 1950s. I think... I could not tell that there were any stunt doubles used in that fight. I'm sure, sure there might have been, but... It just seemed really realistic like that that seemed like a, a real fight to me like it wasn't over stylized it wasn't like overly dramatic it was like these right. two guys get into a fight and that's what it would have been like and then the gunfight at the end i i thought i was expecting there to be a showdown between the two of them where there's a clock ticking and there's music like from a sergio sergio leone movie or something and there <laughs> it, and it wasn't like that at all it was like they're running around the town i mean he's he's trying to get away and hide and they're, you know, throwing uh, lanterns into the barn to burn it down, and and it was just a mess. And it was, it was just like, yeah, that's probably what a real gunfight would have been like. Yeah, very realistic, very realistic. And I, toward the end of the movie, when Will Kane, Gary Cooper, comes out of the, I guess it's the barber shop because he's been cleaned up. I'm, sure, I'm not sure which story he's been in, but they they have a crane shot going up and up and up and up and he's shown on the street of this town completely alone totally no one yeah, no one's that's out a, that's a great shot that, that's got to be one of the powerful one of the most iconic shots uh, in film right uh, oh i think so yes <laughs> in in my can... read in my reading in my rabbit hole of reading i did there's a there's a uh, you can see some telephone poles and wires in the background of that shot oh you can <laughs> yeah. oh i didn't but uh, I didn't but see that. You know what? What's a great contrast for that shot, and I think what makes that shot so, so great in hindsight, is that after he's killed the four bad guys, all the townspeople just come out of the yeah. the, the 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 houses and the stores, and it's like he just looks at them with such disdain and just like takes off his star and drops it into the dirt, and it's like I'm I'm through with you people, you know. This is I can't stay here anymore, and I thought that that scene of him totally alone in the town, and then you know at the end when all the people are surrounding him is such a great contrast. And now that I know that they're telephone wires, I'm going to just assume that it was telegraph. 
There you go. Flyers. Telegraph there, flyers. That there takes you go. care of that. I, I handle that one, don't you think? Perfect. <laughs> then the other thing that strikes me is that there's not one part of this movie that can't be researched or criticized because of the rabbit hole writing that's gone on about it. Uh, on every level, whether uh, it's uh, conservative or liberal or whatever the yeah, yeah. it's either it's either it's either too liberal or too conservative or it's it's <laughs> making a comment on the House of Un-American Affairs Committee or it's making a comment on the Korean War or it's making a comment on World War Two. It's like holy crap! I mean, I know that there was probably some of that in there, and, and I know the directors talked about some of that that there was some overtones of that, but it's like, it's a movie, you know, it's like, it's, it's just a really well put together, well written, well acted, well directed, you know, well filmed movie. And it's, it's, it's a great story and you, you should just be able to enjoy it on that level. And I think all this stuff that's been attached to it is, is, is kind of, it's almost uh, unfortunate in a way. Cause it kind of drags down for me anyway, like the enjoyment of it a little bit. Cause it's like, God, can we just watch it as a film? I feel the same way. To me, um, there's an interesting movie that we've reviewed called The 310 to Yuma from 1957. Yeah. Came out five years after this. And if you put that same kind of research and and uh, writing into that, I would, I would think that I could make a case that the, the lead character in that was abandoned just the same as... Will Cain was in High Noon, but since it was 1957 and not 1952, by then the McCarthy era had pretty much ended. Blacklisting was still going on, but the House on American Activities Committee had run its course, and that movie, to my knowledge, has never gotten any kind of uh, research like what we picked up on High Noon. And and, he, and when he when Glenn oh, yeah, Ford totally. leaves that hotel, he's alone. And there's more than four bad, there's about a dozen bad guys. And everybody in town, except the town drunk, have backed out. Yeah, it's it's really similar. That's a good point. Oh, I think it, it, I think it's all about what was happening around it at the time. It, that, that's got to be it. And, you know, the, I guess yeah. the, other, the other thing that I wondered about was um, his wife, you know, kind of abandons him throughout most of the film. And uh, then goes to talk to Mrs. Ramirez and and Mrs. Ramirez makes a comment about well if I hate this town. I always hated it. To be a Mexican woman in a town like this. I understand. You do? That's good. I don't understand you. No matter what you say. If King was my man, I never leave him like this. I'd get a gun. I fight. Why don't you? He's not my man. He's yours. I think that changes her mind, um, kind of like she's been such such a pacifist up to that point, and she says she's a Quaker, and the reason that she'd become a Quaker was that she'd seen her brothers and her father gunned down. and Yeah. But she kind of changes her ways and then goes and gets a gun and kills one of the, one of the outlaws and then gets captured by the kind of the lead guy. Ian, Ian uh, McDonald. But in, in, in getting captured kind of also helps throw Frank Miller off balance so that uh, Marshall Kane can shoot him. So really, she was instrumental in, in saving him. And I thought that was a really kind of in, neat... She had a, I thought she had an interesting character arc throughout the film. 
she's very innocent and naive at the beginning and just wants to go off and live happily ever after with this older man that she's married and then he 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 gets pulled back into this because he's got this sense of duty to the town and to his moral code and she's not bought into that at all because she thought that he was done with that and then when she realizes that you know what i'm my duty is is with him and i need to be there for him you know it was really instrumental in saving saving him and that was a great that was a great scene i thought that whole ending scene where she picks up the gun and protects him when i saw this for the first time in 1952 the ending was so dramatic for me and and the, and the surprise of what she did I, I, I still remember that movie. Just It's etched in my memory because of that. I, I think that it must have been an interesting group of people that put this movie together. First of all, Gary Cooper was a very uh, straightforward uh, Republican, fairly conservative. Carl Foreman, who wrote the screenplay, was blacklisted because he'd been a member of the Communist Party 10 years before this. Fred Zinnemann the director said uh, he was tired of all these people that were rearranging how he did the movie. So, And then Stanley Kramer, who did so many good movies over his career. It's like, these are quite a divergent group of people that got together to put this together. It wasn't like they all sat down and said, let's make this big statement movie that we all agree on. Because I, I have a hard time thinking that Gary Cooper... And Carl Foreman well, would have agreed exactly. on much of I mean, anything. They, they got together to make they, they got together to make a movie, and and they did an outstanding job. And the results are evident on the on the the screen. And and I, I think that's what's important about it. And that's what I really enjoyed about it. It's hard. It's hard to. It's hard to think that they sat down ahead of time and like plotted out these connections and reasons why they were going to do this or that. And you know, <laughs> they would have never made the movie. And and so you know what, Gary Cooper take it too long. Probably that's probably one of the best portrayals of a reluctant hero that's ever been put on film. I mean, even to this day, it's it's just you you can see oh, that he's just so torn up there's a scene when he's all alone and and the train is coming to town the whistle's blowing and there's a young like 15 or 14 year old kid that volunteers to help him uh, and right before that he right before that scene where the kid says I'll I'll help you give me a gun I know how to use a gun he's he's got his head down on his arms and he's crying I think and he's just so he's just think you know it he thinks he's going to his grave yep. and even even with that knowledge, he's still going to go out there and try to stop these people. And that that vulnerability that make that's what makes him such an enigmatic character to me. Um, I, I definitely want to watch it again just to just to see him. I give this uh, High Noon movie a ten out of ten. I love the story. I love the black and white film. The music is is perfect. And they wanted Frankie Lane to do the music, but he was in Europe, so they had Tex Ritter do it. And my friend, the retired actor here that I see every Friday, said that that opening sound of the of the song, you know, the clip clop, clip clop. That was made with an organ. <laughs> really? They wanted something else, but that that's that's what they had, so they did that that beat with a with a pipe organ. Oh, that's great! Yeah, the he, <laughs> the music was great. Tex Ritter was great. Yeah, I gave it a 10 out of 10 as well, and uh, yeah, highly, highly recommend that if you haven't seen it, you, you watch it, and it's on Netflix right now, so you can go out and watch it there. 
I would watch it before reading a lot about it. Yeah, then... don't 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 do any internet research ahead of time. <laughs> that was a mistake on my part. Man, um, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, so next week we do a podcast, but I don't think we've decided on what it is, or did we? No, we haven't decided yet. So we'll have to. So it'll be a surprise. Surprise. But we did talk about August, and we've got a theme. Yes. We've got a theme for August, which is we do, which will be great. Yeah, which is August is for animation, and we're going to have four classic animated films, which we have not decided on the list, but we've got a good uh, selection to choose from. So that's coming up in August, and but we don't know what we're doing for the rest of July yet. <laughs> I uh, I have two thoughts for July uh, doing Adam's Rib from 1949 at some point in July. And then when we're doing our animation festival, I th- I'd like to toss uh, a nominee into the ring of the Roadrunner and the Wile E. Coyote, the cartoon. Not not all of them, just the summary of one of them, because they're all the same. Once you've seen one, you've seen them Maybe all. Maybe we could have that as part of what we talk about, because those are more TV shows, so yeah. But did they? Oh, no, the, ori- the original was 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 in uh, theaters. Oh, okay. All right. Well, yeah. that's that's a contender then. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. This is Matt Johnson coming to you from Bellevue, Washington. This is Bob Johnson in Los Angeles, uh, wishing you a great week of movie watching. That was the opening music to High Noon, released in, I want to say, 1953. July uh, 24th, 1952. 1952. And it was released by, was it Paramount? It was uh, United Artists. Okay, let me, I'll start, I'll do this again. <laughs> that was the opening music. <laughs> 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 oh All boy, right. here we go.